Testament scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Hear God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we suffer, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Let's pray. The merciful God, who sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation, give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Good evening. It is, as always, a pleasure, a delight to be with you, and even more so to preach God's Word and minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. So tonight, for our, our scripture, we'll be in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. And as you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. And these are the words of God. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and every hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, 
the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, You are indeed our shepherd. You gently gather your lambs into your arms, and you watch over us with might as our great King. And you have prepared a way in the wilderness. You have made straight the crooked path in giving us the Lord Jesus Christ, our good shepherd, the very shepherd of our souls. And so here we are as your people desiring to worship you, that we might be rooted in Christ, that we might be built up in Christ and established in our faith. And we pray all these things unto your glory, through your Spirit, and in the name of Jesus Christ. And amen. Please be seated. Well, let me begin by putting before you a a question, a question that the great Puritan Thomas Goodwin asked of his listeners, a question that is fitting for us to consider this evening. And the question is simply this, what is God's greatest work of wonder that he ever performed? What is God's greatest work that He ever performed? And perhaps your mind, as you're thinking through an answer, maybe immediately goes to creation itself. That God could bring all things into existence simply by speech, by the word of His power. Perhaps your mind goes to the parting of the Red Sea. That great event of redeeming Israel and destroying the Egyptians. Or even still, perhaps you think of the fall of Jericho. Maybe Gideon's army and his 300 men chariots of fire, and so on and so forth, as it seems there's just too many great works of wonder to select merely one. And so, it may surprise you that when that great Puritan answered his own question as to what is the greatest work of wonder that God ever performed, he answered it by saying, it was of all things, the incarnation of the Son of God. That the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, becoming man, becoming like us, becoming like you and me in every respect, in every way, Accepting sin, to be Emmanuel, to be God with us, is God's greatest work. As we look tonight at at Isaiah 40, we will indeed see how the advent, how the coming of God is of such greatness. And so we'll walk through the text in three simple portions, looking at, firstly, the comfort of God, secondly, the Word of God, and lastly, the greatness of God. But overall, our main focus is simply this. The comfort of God's people is found in the coming of God. The God who comes is the God who comforts. True comfort from the true gospel. And even from that, I think, springs another question for you to begin pondering. And it's this. What is it that I find the most comfort in? What is it that my mind, my heart goes to to find the most comfort? We live in an age, after all, that promises comfort. In all ways, from everything from a pill to a plush pillow. All manner of creaturely comforts, but could you answer the catechism? When the catechism says, Christian, what is your only comfort in life or in death? Answer, 
My only comfort in life or in death is that I am not my own, but that I belong to my only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, let us hear Isaiah's great encouragement as we jump in. Verses 1-5, through the comfort of God. Now, this is a timely word, if ever, for Israel, because this section falls on the tail end of judgment. If you just want to glance at the previous chapter, chapter 39, verse 6 says, The days, the days they are coming when you and all your loved ones will be exiled, carried off by the hand of your enemies, the Babylonians. And why will this happen? Because you have broken covenant with me. You have profaned my name. You have worshipped idols. Your sons will be eunuchs, which is to say the promise to Abraham that all, in him all the families of the earth will be blessed seems lost. And that is many things. But that is not comforting. And so do not miss it that out of the bleakest, out of the darkest of moments for Israel, for the church, comes these words in verse 1. Comfort. Comfort my people. You can hear the comfort is doubled. Comfort, comfort. As if God is saying that His compassions are by far more plenteous than the condemnation. And verse 1, and by the way, is not a suggestion, but a command to comfort God's people. That despite Israel's sins, God says they are my people. And therefore, my people shall and will be comforted. And then, as we have sort of an idiomatic way of saying today, speak to my heart. God literally says in verse 2 in the Hebrew, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. God, in the most loving and tender of ways, delivers this visceral message right to their inner man. Verse 2, that her warfare is ended, is over. You can imagine soldiers perhaps in a foreign land who have been fighting and they are so weary and downcast at at an endless war and then all of a sudden the news rings through the streets that the war is over. The war is over and they're tossing their helmets in the air and running about like children in, in such joy because this infernal war is over and we're going home. And that is a small picture of what we have here. But interestingly, the war is not over because of what the troops have performed or what the troops have done, but rather what has been done for the troops. As verse 2 continues, the iniquity of this people is pardoned. Their sins forgiven. And not only is their sin forgiven, but more important, more important, who is it that forgives? So you see Isaiah's great comfort that this pardon comes not from man, not from self, but from Yahweh Himself. Verse 2, that she has received this pardon from the very hand of the Lord God Himself. It's like when that angel took, took from the altar with the tongs of, and they took that coal and he, he came up to Isaiah and touched his lips and said, your sin is atoned for, as if it was coming right from the hand of Yahweh Himself. And so too here for Israel. And just when it cannot get any better, as you look again, you find it is a double pardon. Their sins would no doubt deserve a a double punishment. And God says here it's a doubling actually of forgiveness. I'm struck by that. How often do we think it's the reverse of God? How easy is it to think that God is unusually severe? He's unusually harsh. Perhaps even mean-spirited. That He will not only punish for sin, but He will do so with extra cruelty. How much more difficult it is for us to see God as unusually kind and gracious and comforting. And so God says, here is grace upon grace. Here is a fountain to cleanse you. 
to wash you of your sins. Here is full atonement. Can it be? And so what is the name of this grace upon grace? What is the name of this fountain for cleansing? Well, you will remember no doubt what that angel said that day when he came and he said, you shall name him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. And so if death came through one man, through Adam, how much more, how doubly more does grace come through Jesus Christ? Friends, are you comforted? Are you doubly comforted? Are you abundantly comforted in the fullness of God's blessing to you in Jesus Christ? Maybe you're here tonight and you find so little to be comforted in. So defeated in sin, so mired in discouragement, shame, guilt, condemnation, stress upon stress. Well, hear this. Double comfort from the hand of the Lord God. How blessed is the man whose sins are not counted against him. Isaiah continues on and the story at this point seems like God is acting very ungodlike, you could almost say, because you look at verse 5 and it says God's glory is, is going to come, it's going to be revealed, that's all well and good. But then verse 3 says, to prepare for this glory, the road starts in the wilderness. And you think, no, 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 no. If God were to visit His people, it would not be through the wilderness. The wilderness is for nomads and, and vagabonds, and my goodness, it's for animals. But not for, for God. For God, it should be the red carpet and glamour and glitz. And Isaiah continues and he says, make straight in the desert a highway. I mean, no, this simply cannot be. It's not, it's not fitting for God to come through remote, desolate places like a desert, like a dry and, and parched land. That's not very godlike. And as perplexing as that is, how much more is this? That God, as the infinite one, the eternal one, who was and is and is to come, comes down in the utter frailty of human flesh. That God comes down as bones and flesh and the cries of a baby and runny noses and whatever the first century equivalent was of dirty diapers. What remarkable proof of God's love for us. And when John the Baptist picks up these words of Isaiah, where is he but in the wilderness? Saying, come, humble yourself. Repent so that you may live. And so, Christian, the way to comfort is not by grasping at it. It's not by self-engineering it. It is to humble yourself and to come to the Lord Jesus Christ that God might favor you, to lower yourself that God might exalt you at the proper time and raise you up in Christ. God is, as it were, setting up a dramatic reversal of fortune. A cosmic upheaval is coming. As verse 4 says, every valley lifted up, every mountain made low. Can anything stand in the way of God's plan for His coming glory? Can evil empires, can sin, can exile, can Satan's schemes, can your shortcomings put up a traffic jam on the highway of God? Can man make crooked what God makes straight? Isaiah says, no. What is uneven will be made even. What is high will be leveled out. And again, remember at this time when Isaiah is, is writing this, it seems likely that God's people are in exile. Which again is another way of saying that they are lost, homeless, spiritually dead, and even forsaken by God. And to such a people, indeed my people, in such a dismal reality, God says, get ready for the world to be remade. And what is this earth-shattering event? 
What is this event that can only properly be described as if the world is being turned upside down? Because the world is being turned upside down. Well, you see, it comes to a head in verse 5. It is the glory of the Lord that is to be revealed. That the very one who made the world is coming into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And that all flesh will see Him. I trust you can see that if God is determined to reveal His glory, what will stop Him? Who will turn a blind eye? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it's at a manger in Bethlehem, the glory of the only Son of God, whether it's at Pentecost when His Spirit is poured out on all the church, whether it's the end of the age when all flesh will see Him and He will judge the living and the dead, the coming of Jesus Christ is increasingly public. All flesh will see Him. And what a comfort that we find here. When you were dead, God made you alive. When you were in a wilderness, God made you alive. And friends, when you look at God through the black clouds of suffering, of trial, of tribulation, and it seems that God is but frowning, hear His Word, that He promises to never leave you or forsake you. That is true comfort. Secondly, let's look at the Word of God, verses 6-8. through Again, from their perspective, in a foreign land, under the hand of their enemies, you could see them saying, yeah, Isaiah, that's great and all, but how do I know such a thing is certain? I mean, just look, look around. We're in exile. And I would put it to you. Do you share Isaiah's confidence when he replies in verse 5, yes, of course it's certain because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So it is as good as done. Friends, what is the sure method of correcting our unbelief, of remedying our doubts? Isaiah shows us the better way. It is meditating upon the promises of God. It is taking God's Word and laying it up in our hearts with faith and love and trust. So if you find yourself assaulted with all manner of fear and anxiety, I would urge you to start here. To fix your mind upon hearing the Word of God spoken to your heart. And you see it so clearly in verse 6. This voice says, cry. And Isaiah says, yes, God, tell me what to say. For your servant will speak exactly what you tell me and command me to say. About every spring, my family and I, we we pile into the car. We head out to the local nursery and we purchase a few dozen flowers. Home Depot, Lowe's. Come back with some, some marigolds, some vincas, some begonias. And we come home and we arrange the flowers. And we dig all the necessary ditches. We plant the flowers, pack in the soil. Mostly mom does this. I'm there to sort of supervise because she's better at it than I am. But when we're done, we take a step back and we admire the flowers and all their glory and all their aesthetic beauty. Each one of them clothed by God, as it were. But I'm sure you can guess what happens every time of year. About this time of year, you go out You want to admire your wonderful handiwork, all that flowering glory, only to find a heaping mass of death, of off-color decay. What was before such a great parade of glory now is just brown death, a botanical graveyard, and only within a few months, gone. And that, of course, is Isaiah's point in verse 6. All flesh is grass, and the beauty of it is like the flower of the field. It withers, it fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. 
God's glory is revealed, and now we get to see our glory revealed. And we see how utterly foolish it is, how vain it is that we would ever deposit our trust, our hopes in ourselves, in fellow man, how vain our self-confidence would be in the presence of the Almighty God, the one in whom we live and move and have our very being. If God were to withdraw His Spirit, we would perish but in a moment. And any boasting in our own talents, our own abilities, our own accomplishments would be seen for what it is, a graveyard of vanity. And what a clear call to humble ourselves before the Lord. To confess that Jesus Christ truly is, truly is the life-giving vine. And I can do nothing apart from Him. That apart from union with Christ, we are just branches to be cut off, thrown into the fire. But Isaiah does not stop there, gladly. Because believe it or not, he is setting the stage for more comfort. To remove the wax of pride from our ears so that we can hear this contrast. That yes, we are flesh. Yes, we fade. Yes, we're transient. But what is it that is enduring? What is it that is forever durable? What is it, Christian, that I can truly take comfort in? Better said, who is it that I can truly take comfort in and will renew this world? Verse 8, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. I love what Calvin said when he commented on this verse. He said right here in this verse, in just a few words, the entire gospel is laid out for us. That doesn't seem obvious at first, but Calvin said the whole gospel right right here. And when you think about it, you can see what he means. Because here we have this confession that in ourselves we have nothing to bring. That we're utterly impoverished. That we are just going from glory to misery to death. And so being truly humbled, only then do we fly to the Lord God. Do we fly to Jesus Christ on wings of faith. To be forever blessed by Him. And so Christian, take heart. Take courage. The eternal Word of God is your support. This is your Father's testament to you. To your heart which cannot fail. As Peter says, the eternal seed that is implanted in your souls. If you're here tonight and and not a Christian, please don't understand me as if I'm... Misunderstand me as if I'm saying that man is some kind of worthless worm. In fact, it's just the opposite. Isaiah draws the picture that just like the flower has beauty, so does man. Man's created in God's image. Man is created in God's likeness. Man is made to reflect God's glory, which makes his sin and his rebellion that much more odious and that much more severe. The problem is like the flower, man is fading away into death because of his sin and his rebellion. And what would it take to recapture this image? What would it take to restore this image? What would it take to redeem this image? But God with us, Emmanuel, hell. Thus is the word of the Lord. Now, in light of, the, in light of just how awesome this word of God is, in light of just how durable it is, what to do? Well, Isaiah says, in a sense, go tell it on the mountain. Verses 9-11 through 11, as we look at the greatness of God. And again, just to set the context, you would be maybe even shocked. Maybe even a little mad at Isaiah if he said these words to you. Remember, there you are. You're in exile. You're under the hand of your enemies in Babylon. Both Fox and CNN are just streaming bad news all day long. And in that context, listen to Isaiah's audacity in verse 9. Get up on a high mountain, herald of good news. 
Lift your voice with strength, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say, behold your God. The prophet summons them. He says, hey, go up to a mountain so that this message can be carried with maximum reach, maximum distance. And Isaiah says, whatever you do, don't hold back. Don't hesitate. Lift up your voice with confidence, with strength. Don't quiver. Don't get a shaky voice. Don't knock your knees together. It's like when God told them to march on Jericho. Whatever you do, blow that trumpet as loud as you can because I am working salvation this day. But what's interesting, look again at verse 9. Very specifically, Isaiah tells them, you, you do it. Get yourself Not me, the prophet. You get yourself up on that mountain and bring this good news. And friends, that means us. That means the church of Jesus Christ and her mission that the church is the pillar, the buttress of the truth that we collectively are to disciple the nations, to go out and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And to go to the highways and the byways and not whisper, but shout it out to proclaim His excellencies. That this is indeed good news of great joy, not for some people, but for all people. And to say, behold, your God comes. He's the very sum of our happiness. Isaiah continues on. And he elaborates and he says God comes in two ways. He comes with a ruling arm. And secondly, he comes with a tender arm. Verse 10, the ruling arm. Isaiah says, behold, God comes with might and his arm rules for him. God, of course, must stoop to conquer. And He comes not needing any assistance or needing any reinforcements or backup. It's His own arm that rules for Him. And we see this in the Christmas story, don't we? It's somewhat funny. I get a little laugh laugh uh, to myself when you compare some of the soft, delicate lullabies of Christmas. Lullabies like Away in a Manger that tells us of little baby Jesus. He's so sweet. He's sitting there and he's, he's rocking in the hay. He's not making a peep. And you compare that to Mary's Magnificat. Mary's song. Where she says God has shown His strength with His arm. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. In other words, when Mary looks and she ponders at sweet little baby Jesus asleep on the hay, her reflection is, I have just given birth to the ever-dominant king, to the king of kings. I imagine her, maybe she even held up one of those little itty-bitty baby's feet, those little, that little itty-bitty foot, those little itty-bitty toes, and said, this is the foot, this is the foot that will crush the head of Satan. This is the foot that will pulverize the kingdom of darkness. And so, friends, could you echo Mary's simple confession? Jesus is Lord. That He is Lord not of some far-off heavenly galaxy, but He's Lord of heaven and this earth. And He's Lord of now and here and hereafter and forevermore. And so what strength, what comfort the saints can draw from knowing Christ as your King. As the shorter catechism says, He is our King who comes and He rules and He defends us and He restrains all of His and our enemies and conquers our enemies. That He has promised that Satan will ultimately not sift you and not prevail against His church and that the kingdom of darkness will not win and that your sins will not have dominion over you and that He will put all enemies under His feet. As Isaiah says, His reward is with Him. We're reminded again of how this king is unlike any other. 
that this King Jesus won his reward. And he conquered his enemies, not by military might, but of all things, by his death. And his very death was the means of victory. That is for the joy, for the reward that was set before him, that he endured the cross and he despised its shame. And so behold the victorious suffering king. Secondly, not only the ruling arm, but he also comes with a tender arm. We go from might to meekness. As you look at verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms, gently leading them. And so we began with comfort, and the theme continues on. And you see this great imagery here. You can almost imagine a little child, one of these little children, they're running around outside, they're running perhaps away from their father and mother. They trip, they scrape their knee, and they start wailing and wailing and wailing until what? Until mom or dad comes up to them, scoops them up in their arms to console them and to comfort them. And we see the glory of our great God, the very same God who is king, who rules with might and terrifying power, is the same God who attends to us with the gentleness of a shepherd. Again, to quote Calvin and put it so well here, that as our shepherd, God watches over each one of us, each one of us, in proportion to our weaknesses. He's careful in His watching. He's gentle in His handling and patience in leading each one of us according to our constitution. So Christian, take heart. That God comes to you as a shepherd. His rod and His staff comfort you. He promises to lead us gently to still waters. Spurgeon once observed that there are some souls that for whatever reason are just perpetually heavy and sad. That if they make any music for whatever reason, they always seem to dwell on the bass note. Well, if such a sad, sad soul be among us here, know that you have a king to defend you. Know that you have a shepherd who carries his lambs close to his heart. That he does not come with harshness and brutality, but with gentleness. Children, students, you should know that God comes to you. He presents himself to you as a king and as a shepherd. That in all the trials that you face, the pressure to belong to a certain group, temptations in your sins, even just the confusions you face as you are growing up, hear that God comes to you as a shepherd to lead you and guide you. If you're here tonight and not a Christian, hear that God's gospel declares to you that He is King and He is shepherd of His people in all their weakness and distress, and He bids you to repent and to come under His yoke. And of course, God is our shepherd climactically comes as the good shepherd in the person of Jesus Christ. And how shocking to His hearers when He comes and He says, not I know the good shepherd, let me tell you about the good shepherd, but I am the good shepherd. And just as monumental as that revelation was, how much more so when He said, I the good shepherd come to lay down my life for my sheep. And so the question is for you today, That if God is such a shepherd, and He is, are you a sheep? The very nature of sheep, of course, is to hear the voice of their shepherd. To follow Him. To forsake all strangers. And to follow with single-hearted dependence and devotion to their shepherd. When have you ever seen a sheep say to a shepherd, No, no, you sit down. I've got this fight. No, no, you sit down. I know the way to go. I will lead myself. Thank you very much. No, they are utterly dependent upon their shepherd. 
And do we receive His Word that way? That the Scriptures to me are not advice. They're not suggestions. But when I take up His Word, it is my King. It is my Shepherd speaking to me through the Spirit to comfort me. And so as we close tonight, I have only but one simple meditation upon the comfort of Advent. The comfort of God's coming. No doubt you've heard the expression of, quote, a comfort zone. The idea being, of course, that all of us have certain perimeters, certain lanes, certain boundaries that we must stay in in order to feel comfortable. And we do whatever we can, of course, to stay inside our, quote, comfort zone. But the truth is, for Christians, we have no such comfort zone. We daily seek to put to death our sins. We daily contend for the faith. We daily pursue righteousness. Daily abhor evil. Daily fight the good fight of faith. But that's okay. Because what Christians have is far, far, far better. We do not have some mere abstract zone. But we belong to the triune God who proclaims comfort my people. True comfort is that I am not my own but that I belong to Jesus Christ. And so, Christian, my plea to you is take it. He is your comfort. Take it. Take comfort so that you can take courage. Take comfort so that you can fight the good fight of faith. Take comfort in all of your tribulations, in all of your distresses, to hear His words when He says, in this world you will have have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And not only that, As Jesus Himself said to His disciples, it's better for me to go away. It's more advantageous for me to leave you because I will send the Comforter. I will send My Spirit so that My Word will dwell in your heart richly. To take My words and have them live in your heart and in your life. So Christian, are you taking comfort? No doubt you are taking comfort in something. Well, Christian, come home. Take comfort in the triune God who proclaims this gospel to you. May God comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, You are indeed the God who has proclaimed our comfort, saying, Comfort, comfort my people. That apart from Your Word, we would be utterly lost in our distress, our anxiety, our rebellion, our alienation. And and instead of us coming to You, You have come to us. You have come down to us in the person of Your Son to take away our sins, to bring us to You, to have eternal fellowship, eternal comfort with You, and Trinitarian fellowship. And so help us, Father, to forsake all others and find our rest and our abode in the fellowship of You, the triune God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And amen.